morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship. I want to welcome you to the first installment in our series on the life of David. Over the next five or six weeks, we're going to be looking at different stories and episodes of David's life. And he is someone who can challenge all of us because he's described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And that's what I want to be. And I think you do too. And I hope that's why you're here this morning, so we can learn how to follow him better. Today, we're going to start off with probably the best-known episode, the best-known story in David's life, and that's his battle against the giant Goliath. So under the catchy heading of David and Goliath, you will find an outline inside your bulletin with a number of passages that I'll be mentioning. A lot of, some big chunks are reading from 1 Samuel chapter 17, where you'll find this story and some life applications as we go along. And I think you'll be surprised at how much this story applies to you and me. So I want to welcome the folks who are worshiping with us at Pike Road and at Cloverdale and um, Wetumpka and other places, even on the web in San Antonio. And so we are really glad you're with us today for this installment. Uh, One of the hardest things I have uh, to do is to talk about David and Goliath in a meaningful context, because many of us have heard the story or the phrase, you know, it's like you could even have in the NCAA basketball tournament in the spring, a small school like Davidson taking on Kentucky or uh, you know, Bucknell beating the University of Kansas in a basketball game or something like this. And we say, well, it's a David versus Goliath thing. And by the way, Bucknell did beat Kansas. And I picked that in my bracket a few years ago. I just wanted you to know. But anyway, um, but when we talk about things like this, we throw it out there as if David and Goliath is just about a little guy beating a big guy with lucky shot. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. This is a battle between a little shepherd boy and a well-armed giant, but it wasn't a lucky shot. This is all about having faith in God, and that's what I want to talk with you about today. Let me have a word of prayer, and we'll jump right in. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity to be here. I thank you for your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. And Lord, help us to learn how to practice our faith better as we look at the story of David and Goliath. Give us fresh eyes and fresh ears. Help us to see this story from your point of view. Help us to become like David, people after your own heart. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Um, by the way, let me just tell you, I just got back from a uh, mission trip to Mexico with a group of folks there. We built a house. Uh, can we put that uh, picture up, please? Um, the house standing right behind the people you see on the screen here, that, that's our volunteer team that went. I'm the guy in the floppy hat at the top of the stairs there. It was hot, okay? Anyway, the, um, the house that we built, we built from scratch. It was just lumber. It was a slab with a bunch of lumber and shingles and stuff. And by the end of the week, that house was real. And when I, called, when I checked, it's still standing. So this is good. Uh, no, we had a, a great team, and it's a great house, and the young couple that got it there with their little uh, daughter, um, they're, they're just ecstatic. And if you've never been a part of a mission trip, we've got some great missions opportunities. Still a couple more left this year. If you'd like to be a part of it, please let us know. We want to get you involved. It'll change your life. Also, since we're talking about David and Goliath, there's a picture of me and the pastor of the church there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> when I walked up to speak at their church, they go, ooh, Foster Grande or whatever. You know, I was like, wow, they come in bigger sizes in America. So anyway, uh, uh, it, we were part of it. We got to worship with the church on Wednesday night, and it was fun. And that is the pastor there. His name is Angel, and uh, we uh, will be praying for him. But I wanted you to know about that. So anyway, yeah, it was a fun thing. I hope you take a, you'd be a part of it. Our ushers reminded me, they're standing here waiting for me to mention, if you need a pen, get a pen, just raise your hand, and then you can take some notes as we go along. And the fill-in-the-blank item on point number one is this, that Goliath was a freakishly huge Philistine who mocked the Israelites, their king, and their faith. So this isn't about a little kid with a lucky shot with a slingshot. David did indeed have a slingshot and kill a giant with it. 
and bring down a giant with it, but um, wasn't lucky at all. It was due to his faith, and Goliath was mocking the faith of the Israelites. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'll explain some context in the story as we go along. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle. Saul, who was the king of the Israelites, countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with a valley between them. So what had happened was God had brought the Israelites into the land of Israel, pretty much the same geography as it is today. And he had promised them that when they went in, he would be with them and they would be able to drive out the wicked people who lived there and take this land as their own possession. A promise, he had promised it to them. That's why it's called the promised land. God had promised that, this land, to the descendants of Israel, or Jacob. That was Jacob's name given him by God. So it became the land of Israel, the promised land. Well, there were certain people who didn't drive out easily. And the Philistines were a group of those people. They lived down along the seashore of the Mediterranean. The Israelites had come in through the hills and they didn't go without putting up a fight. And so we are now 400, 350, 400 years after the promised land had been settled and there were still pockets of resistance at different places. And this was one of them. So what happened was the Valley of Elah on either sides of it, the one side of the valley was towards the Mediterranean. The other was toward the hills and the two armies met on opposite sides. Kind of like kids at a playground, they're daring the other one to throw the first punch. You know, kids on a playground, if you throw the first punch, then I can hit you back, and if I get in trouble, I can say, you started it. Well, here, nobody was going to get in trouble, but you have a valley in between. Whichever army ran down the valley and tried to attack the other one, well, whoever had the high ground obviously had, the high, had a huge advantage. There'd be a lot of casualties if they're raining down arrows and chunking spears and rocks at you as you're climbing up the other side of the valley. So neither side wanted to take those losses, so they just kind of had a standoff with a valley in between. But now there's a twist to this story. Well, so the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley of Elah between them. And then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and a bronze coat of mail that weighed 125 pounds. 125 pounds of armor. I mean, fully dressed with that. I mean, he could have easily weighed 600, 700 pounds. One guy, nine and a half feet tall. If he were wearing that armor and was in this room now, we would shriek in terror. I mean, this guy would be something to behold. And I don't have anything in my experience of ever meeting someone that big. One of the biggest guys I've ever met, I met about a month and a half ago, my son and Evan and I, Evan and I did. And can we put that picture up too? This is a picture of us with Mark Eaton. He was speaking here in Prattville a month and a half ago. He's seven foot four. Okay? This guy was huge, and he used to play for the Utah Jazz. He was doing a motivational thing, and I mean, I don't usually meet people. I just go, wow. I mean, wow. He was huge, and he put his hand on our shoulders, and it was like a baby squid wrapped around my shoulder. It's like, you know, fingers like this long. You're going, oh my goodness, this is a big guy. And uh, Charles Barkley, I even heard him interview where he was talking about this guy. He never could, he said he always made him change his shot because he'd be up there swinging at the ball. He was so big that He'd make people alter their shots and miss all the time. In the NBA, I mean, he was big for those guys. Played in the NBA for over 10 years as a great shot blocker. Well, he's only 7'4". Goliath would be two feet taller than that. I mean, I don't even know how to describe such a monster. And that's what the Israelites looked at him as, as a monster. And so they were terrified of him. So Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the ranks 
he had a coat, bronze coat of mail. The, the armor weighed 125 pounds. And Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called, I'm the Philistine champion, but you're only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. And when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. I mean, shaking in their boots, shaken. And they didn't do anything. Now, it's important to note here that according to Scripture, this wasn't the first time the Israelites had faced a giant. In fact, uh, an entire generation of Israelites died in the wilderness because they didn't trust God when it came their chance to face giants. And uh, they didn't trust God to keep his promises, and they wouldn't obey him. What I didn't tell you before was that the Israelites had gotten to the edge of the promised land. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And Moses had led them right up to the edge of the promised land. They were all poised to go in and take possession of it. And God, excuse me, God had said, I will be your champion going with you. Just trust me. I will bless you and I'll drive out the nations in front of you. They already seen him do all kinds of miracles in Egypt, rescuing them from slavery and decimating Pharaoh's whole army and all this stuff. They'd seen God do mighty miracles. Now, you'd think they'd get up to the border of the promised land and they'd just go right in, but that's not what happened. There are 12 tribes in Israel, and Moses wisely chose a representative from each of the tribes and said, I want you to form a scout team. Scouts, I want you to go figure out the best way to attack the land and then report back to me in about a month. So 40 days later, they came back. They are carrying back one cluster of grapes. It was so big, it took two of them to carry it on a pole. I mean, it was, the land was flowing with milk and honey is the way they described it. Just an awesome land. And two of the spies came back and said, this place is awesome. Let's go get it. But the other 10 said, nothing doing. Although it is flowing with milk and honey, it's a death trap. In fact, I've printed for you here what the 10 spies with a negative report said in Numbers 13. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. And next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. And so Saul's great, 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 great grandparents had come face to face with Goliath's great, 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 great grandparents. And when they had an opportunity to go into the promised land and face these giants, they wouldn't go. The first town when they explored the promised land, the first town the spies came to was Hebron. And that's where three of the descendants of Anak lived. So you get the idea the whole town was filled with seven, eight, nine-foot-tall people. I mean, that Mark Eaton would be a shrimp. The whole town was huge, and they said, we can't fight these people. The two spies, Joshua and Caleb, Joshua later became the leader, and Caleb remained faithful. They said, look, God will defeat them. Let's just trust him. But the other 10 wouldn't. And so Israel turned back, and they said, we can't go in there and risk our children. They'll kill us, and they'll, destroy, they'll kill all our children. And so God said, well, if you won't go in, and fine, turn around and march back into the wilderness. The spies were in the wilderness for 40 days. You'll be in the wilderness one year for each day. Then they spied out the land. And that way, a whole gener- over the next 40 years, that whole generation of faithless doubters will die out. And the very children you were worried about, they will go into the promised land. And I will help them to de- defeat the giants that you won't face. And they turned around, and that's why they wandered for 40 years. They finally came back with a new generation. Now, it's important to note that they didn't go in because they didn't trust God. It's also important to note that Saul was terrified of Goliath for the same reason. He'd stopped trusting the Lord and obeying him too. 
A few years earlier, God had made Saul king of the Israelites precisely because they'd requested a king to lead them in battle against the Philistines. And so God told the prophet Samuel, if that's what they want, then give them a king. It even pointed Saul out. And Saul was, uh, looked like the perfect king to lead their army. Saul was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 9. But sadly, over those next few chapters between 1 Samuel 9 and 1 Samuel 15, it became very clear that Saul had his own agenda. God would tell him to wait, and he wouldn't wait. God would tell him to go somewhere and destroy something completely, and he'd keep some of it for himself. And he was always thinking of himself and disobeying the Lord. And so here's what God said in 1 Samuel 15 about Saul. He said, I'm grieved that I made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And later on through the prophet Samuel, he told Saul this, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else who's better than you. We'll meet that other person in just a minute, and that's David. Somebody after God's own heart who would trust him. So here's a life application for you and me. We must not let our problems cause us to lose lose faith in God's power or his promises. I mean, what had happened was Saul had heard the stories about Joshua and Caleb, the spies who were faithful. He'd also heard that a whole generation had died off in the wilderness and it was their kids who came into the promised land. He knew all about that and how God had given them victory. Goliath would have known about all this and that's why he would have been taunting them, saying that now their God had forgotten about them. Now the Philistine gods were mightier. But Saul had forgotten all those things. The whole Israelite army had forgotten those things. Can you imagine living in a nation where people have forgotten God's word and his promises and no longer believed in him? Can you imagine living in a nation like that? Where people would put up with people mocking the truth? Defying God right and left and the people say nothing? I know this is a hard stretch for us. I think it's appropriate on this Independence Day weekend that we hear a story like this because more relevance than some of us might care to admit. But we, need, we must not let our problems deter us from trusting God in his power and trusting the promises made to us. What's one promise that he's given us? <laughs> Hebrews 13, 5. It's what Moses told the children of Israel when they were going to go face the giants. He said, remember this, and it's quoted again in Hebrews, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. That's the Lord's promise. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Would you read that with me, please? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. One more time. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That's the Lord's promise to you and me. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, I want you to go and make disciples of the whole earth. Teach them everything that I taught you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you always, even to the very end of the world. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Look, if you have somehow heard that following Christ means you will never face a problem in your life, that's wrong. You and I will face problems, but we won't face them alone. We have God's Holy Spirit inside of us. We have his word to guide us. And we have our brothers and sisters in Christ right alongside us. And the Lord promises to go with us. And he will not forsake us. And so we can't let our, we can't lose faith in God's power as promises. By the way, so you know how it happened, after 40 years, they came right back to the border again, the exact same place they'd been 40 years before. And this time, they blew right into the promised land. They conquered all those giants. 
and drove them out. And uh, one of the people who led all that was a man named Caleb, the one faithful spy other than Joshua. Joshua was leading the whole army. Caleb had survived. The other 10 spies had all died. And uh, Caleb, when they came back in, they asked each of the people, well, they divided up the land where you want your inheritance. And Caleb said, I want the hill country, the place where we went first, where the other 10 spies chickened out. And here's what he said. Give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. You'll remember that, that as scouts, we found the descendants of Anak living there in great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, I'll drive them out of the land, just as the Lord said. I was 35 then, I'm 75 now, but I'm just as strong as uh, I need to be if the Lord goes with me. So give an old man the hill country and we'll show those descendants of Anak how real the Lord is. I mean, you imagine, Caleb, I had to walk around that ridiculous wilderness for 40 years because y'all wouldn't listen. Now give me the hill country. Let's get this done. If you want to know the story of David and Goliath, it's the same story, second verse. Another giant. By the way, they drove them all out. Caleb and Joshua did, except for one little pocket of the descendants of Anak. They went and settled in a little town close to the coast among the Philistines, the town of Gath where Goliath was from. So now, 350, 400 years later, a descendant of the Israelites, head and shoulders taller than all the others, is facing a descendant of Anak, head and shoulders taller than all the others. The Philistine was ready to fight. Saul was a chicken. Enter David. Point two, only David, a shepherd boy, was willing to trust God enough to face Goliath in battle. The whole army turned and ran. But there was one person, there was one person in the land of Israel who wasn't afraid to trust the Lord. There were only two spies out of 12. There was only one person, all of Israel, willing to challenge Goliath, and that was David. And David wasn't even a part of the army when the story started out. He was just a shepherd boy running an errand for his dad. I'm going to read an extended passage here, so you'll have to flip the page with me as I read. This is again from 1 Samuel 17. Now, David was the son of a man named Jesse from Bethlehem in the land of, land of Judah. Christmas time, we talk about Jesus, a descendant of David, was from Bethlehem, the city of David. Well, this is where all that came from. David was the son of Jesse from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shimea, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. But David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. Now understand this, this wasn't a standing army, this was a volunteer army. And people would only come together when there was a big battle and they weren't well uniformed or well trained. Somebody like Saul the king would issue a command, hey, we're going to have a battle, we need you all to come fight. And some people would run out there, if they had a machete, then that became a sword. If they had a pitchfork, they brought that. If they had a rake or a shovel, they would sharpen the edge and turn it into a spear. They'd use sticks and clubs, they'd even use a frying pan. Whatever they had that was heavy and might cause some damage. And they'd, they'd just show up and have a battle. The Philistines were mostly this way, and so were the Israelites. And that's why neither side was really willing to attack, because they weren't all that well trained. And David was running back and forth. Because they were a volunteer army, they needed food from home. So David's dad, Jesse, said, hey, your brothers, three of your brothers, are serving with Saul in the military right now. Go take him some food. For 40 days, every morning and every evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. 
One day, Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your, turn the page, brothers and bring back a report on how they're doing and how, what's going on. He also sent along some supplies for their commander. Well, David arrived at the camp just as Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. So this has been going on for 40 days. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. David, however, asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he's allowed to defy the armies of the living God? But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. If you have an older brother, this doesn't sound that strange to you, okay? (laughs) All right. All right. And by the way, if you don't have an older brother, anytime that you're going to try to stand up and do what's right, it's pretty easy to find naysayers and people who want to discourage you. Anybody else find that to be true? Yeah. It wasn't just Eliab, the older brother, is also King Saul. David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. Thanks, Saul. That's encouraging. Okay. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. So Eliab and Saul were both telling him, you can't do this. Saul should have been the one fighting because he was king. Eliab was the oldest brother, not the youngest brother. If anybody should be representing the clan of Jesse, it should have been Eliab. Neither of them were going to step up to the challenge. David was. Because David trusted God. The others did not. But David persisted. Look, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and wild goats. I mean, sheep and goats. He said, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it again to this Philistine. That's a tough shepherd boy. That's all I got to say. <laughs> For he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. And then Saul gave David his own armor. I mean, he wasn't going to use it. A bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped a sword over it, took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. But he said, I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream, put them into his shepherd's bag, Then armed only with a shepherd's staff and a sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. And this is an incredible story. That's why I put these big chunks here. I just, I mean, this is just amazing. In spite of all the negativity, in spite of all the odds being against him, in spite of everybody else being there for 40 days, David shows up and he's the one person who sees things for what they really are. This is a challenge from a wicked Philistine who's challenging and defying the armies of the living God. And I'm not going to put up with it. The Philistines worshipped a dead God, by the way, the God Dagon, a stupid statue. Israelites worship the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. And David just is incredulous. I mean, he's the only one with ears wide open here. It's like, how come nobody else is doing anything about this? I'll fight him. 
And you think, well, how would that apply to me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's a life application. God likes to use ordinary, unqualified people to accomplish his work. There was nothing special about David. He was just a shepherd boy. Eliab even told him to go home and mind his father's sheep. Get out of here, you little brat. I mean, David wasn't this superhero or other things like this. He was just an ordinary kid. But he had extraordinary faith. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, when the Corinthians were wondering whether or not they could carry out the ministry that God had assigned to them in Corinth, here's what he said. God chose the things this world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God, and God loves it when ordinary people trust in him, and God wins an extraordinary victory, and he gets all the glory. God loves that. And he loved David for doing this. David was a man after his own heart. Finally, somebody who would trust him. Saul was anointed. God had blessed him in battle. Wasn't enough. The rest of the army, they'd had 40 days to think this over. And they were just as cowering as Saul was. David, he wasn't planning on a battle that day. He was bringing roasted grain and some bread to his brothers. And next thing you know, he's squaring off with a giant. And he goes, well, I mean, nobody else will. I'm not going to stand here and put up with this. He's defying God himself. And David loved God. He wasn't going to stand by and let that happen. Back to the action. Goliath walked toward, out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. By, by the way, ruddy-faced just means rosy-cheeked. He was a rosy-cheeked teenager. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? I mean, David had his shepherd's staff, and he cursed David by the name of his gods. See, here you go. This is a spiritual battle. Don't miss this. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. And David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and I will cut off your head. And then I'll give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. And please underline that. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. This is the Lord's battle. That was the thing that the 10 spies couldn't get through their head generations earlier. This is the Lord's battle. Look, I don't know this morning, what type of issues you face, but you and I will face problems in our lives. Could be overcoming an addiction. Could be trying to repair a marriage where there have been problems now for 10, 20 years. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. But the Lord promises to go with us. And if we do the right thing, the Lord says he'll help us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I've placed my Holy Spirit inside of you to give you the desire and the power to get it done. Now let's get on with it. And David is a model of all these things. Why is no one doing anything? Why is no one making this giant be quiet? This is the Lord's battle. And he's running at the giant. That's what happened next. I mean, and he has that magnificent speech 
And then as Goliath moved closer to attack, David ran out to meet him. Everybody else is running away. David is running right at him. Everybody else thought Goliath was too big to to face. David thought he was too big to miss. So David ran quickly out to meet him and reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. By the way, those slings are designed to take a rock about the size of a cue ball. If you wind them upright, they can send that thing hurling a little over 120 miles an hour. I mean, an eight ball to the forehead at 120 will do some damage. That's all I'm going to say, all right? I mean, that hurt. (laughs) And it sunk in. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground as if he was bowing before David and the God whom he served, wearing all of his magnificent armor. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from a chief. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. And the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines. Hey, those Philistines didn't keep their word. I thought they said if Goliath was killed, they'd all surrender. Yeah, imagine that. They lied. They ran like crazy. And the Israelites chased after him. Notice that David's one act of courage inspired a whole army. I mean, what if God wants you and me to step out on faith? What if he's got a difficult problem for us? What if he wants you and me to share our faith with a neighbor down the street? John, I'm not an evangelist. What if he wants you to be on a mission trip? John, I've never been out of the country. I don't even have a passport. What if he wants you to lead a small group? John, I've never been to seminary. I'm no theologian. I can't do this. What if he wants you to lead a devotion at your workplace? I'm not a preacher. What if he wants you to help two neighbors who've been fighting to reconcile? I'm not a counselor. No, you're an ordinary person. And this is a big problem. And maybe God's the one who put you exactly where you are because he wants you to be the one to step in. And it's our moment of truth. Are we going to be Joshua and Caleb or the 10 spies who say we can't do it? Are we going to be David who runs right at the problem or Saul who hides in his tent, giving away armor to little kids? It's important to note here that God had been preparing David for victory over Goliath his whole life. I mean, how do you prepare somebody for a battle against somebody that big? Well, in hand-to-hand combat, there's nobody on the Israelite side that had any confidence they could do it. But what if God was arranging the whole thing? Which he was. And what if, well, David was out tending sheep, that was exactly the right place to practice everything he needed. Because out there when he was tending sheep, David had a chance to go chase after those lions and bears so he wasn't afraid of dangerous things. David had a chance to sit there and write a whole bunch of psalms. That's where many of the psalms came from when David was out watching his dad's sheep playing a small harp like a guitar, writing love songs to God, falling in love with him and trusting him more with each verse. And by the way, I had plenty of time to practice with that slingshot. You can imagine him setting up rocks on a boulder and picking them off one by one. And so who would be the person to go against the giant? Well, somebody who is good with a sling and a stone, who is marksman with a sling and a stone, because he could throw that stone from 100 yards away, while Goliath could never reach him with a spear. 
he was in love with God and he'd faced dangerous animals before, so he wasn't afraid of the danger. He didn't need the armor, he just needed trust in God, which was better than any armor. And that's why in Acts 13, 22, God describes David this way. I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. And that was the most important thing. If you and I want to experience God's blessing, if you and I want to experience the fulfillment of God's promises, if you and I, if you and I want to experience God's power in our lives, the secret is to do what he tells us to do. If you know the right thing to do and you've been convinced of it and you're certain of it, even if it's hard, then trust the Lord and proceed. I mean, if you don't know what to do, pray for wisdom. If you know what to do, pray for backbone. Some of us don't need any more wisdom. We need a kick in the pants. Get going. And lest you think that this only applies to somebody a long time ago, listen to this live application. God's been preparing us for the assignments he has for us too. We only need to trust and obey. Where do I get such an idea? Ephesians 2.10 for, you are, for we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. That's you and me. God has things planned for us. And don't think that David's the only person who had a big challenge ahead of him. There'll be some big challenges for you and me. Some of you are here today going, I cannot believe you're talking about this today. I'm facing the biggest challenge, the hardest problem I've ever faced in my life. A bad diagnosis, a bad relationship, financial stress, career change. You might be in the middle of some big stuff right now. Some of you are feeling pretty good. Well, this might be a message you'll need by Wednesday. It's kind of like that story of, you know, talk to somebody who's raising teenagers. They go, well, I don't have any problems with my teenagers right now. Well, wait about 30 minutes and you'll be good to go, okay? <laughs> well, that's the way it is with life. In our lives, we finish with one problem. We have a moment of peace and then we have another one that picks up soon after that. We're always going through one problem or another. It could be a health concern, a financial concern, Problem with our parents. It's not a problem with our parents. It's a problem with our kids. It's not a problem with our kids. It's a problem with the neighbor. It's not a problem with the neighbor. It's a problem with the future. If it's not about the future, it's something about the past. I can keep going. And if you're not convinced, there's always problems. The question is, are we going to run and hide? Or are we going to face them with courage and say, God will never leave me. God will never forsake me. He'll guide me. Where do I get that promise? Psalm 32. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I'll advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. By the way, guess who wrote Psalm 32? David. Yeah, same guy. Now, if you're not that familiar with Psalm 32, you may be familiar with Psalm 23. It's printed on the back of your outline. If you flip it over under the life application question number two, I've asked the small groups that are meeting here in the summer to read this together and then have a discussion about it, I'd like for us to read it together right now. I printed it in the King James Version. It's just, it just sounds the way it's supposed to sound, okay? And this is the 23rd Psalm. And I'd like for us to read it together, please. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David, the shepherd boy, said, well, the Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who leads me beside still waters, leads me right into green pastures. And even if I have to run through the valley of the shadow of death, even if I have to run down into the valley of Elah and face a great evil, you'll go with me. You'll even put out a spread in the presence of my enemies because that's how good you are. And when it comes my turn to die, I can die with courage because I know that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. And I hope you want to be a part of every part of this series with David, a man after God's own heart. He really talked that way. He really lived that way. And I want to be like him. I hope you do too. Look, I don't know what you're going to face. John, you don't know how dark things are. David said, even if we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid because you're with me. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Never. The only question is whether or not we'll trust and obey. Maybe I'm the one who needs to apologize. Maybe I'm the one who needs to forgive. Maybe I'm the one who needs to start going to counseling. Maybe I'm the one who needs to counsel somebody. You fill in the blank. But God's pulling at us now. And if you're here today, listen to this. This is a reminder that all of us need to hear. God wants us to be salt and light in a dark world that desperately needs people who will be like Caleb. I'm 40 years older, but give me the hill country. Nobody else will believe. I'll believe. With the Lord's help, I'll drive them out. And David's like, well, What does somebody get if you silence this Philistine? How come nobody else is doing anything? He wasn't looking for the battle, but the opportunity came, and he wasn't going to stand by and let God's name be blasphemed. Man. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this story. It's so inspiring to me. I thank you for David, a man after your own heart. And God, I want a heart like David's heart. I want to passionately seek you. Lord, I want to be (coughs) a person who has courage. And Lord, I admire that. It's a little wonder the whole rest of the army chased after him. Finally, somebody of courage. Saul should have been out there. He's hiding in his tent. God, I thank you for Caleb and Joshua. I thank you for David. I thank you when they squared off against giants. They weren't afraid because... You're bigger than any giant. God, I pray that we won't focus on the size of our problems. I pray that we'll focus on the size of our God. That's you, Lord, and there's no problem you cannot handle. In a moment of silence, if the Lord has been speaking to you about something, right now you can't even believe I'm talking about this today because you need to get on with it and you've been postponing and procrastinating something you need to do and pray right now and say, Lord, okay, I heard you. If you give me the strength, I'll do it. Now, if you don't know what to do, pray for wisdom first. But if you know what to do, then pray for backbone. 
good old-fashioned courage. God, I pray that if we're in an unhealthy relationship, an unhealthy dating relationship, we'd break it off. Pray that if there's some habit that's ruining our lives, we deal with it today. No more excuses. With your help, it's possible. Father, we also want to pray for a friend. If you were here today and you go, oh, I wish my sister would have been here. I wish my dad would have been here. I wish my cousin would have been here. Pray for that person right now. Pray for him by name. And say, God, I, oh God, I pray for Brad. I pray for Sarah, I pray for, just pray for whoever they are by name. Oh God, give them wisdom and then give them courage to do the right thing and help me help them. Pray now, pray earnestly, God will hear you. Oh God, I believe you are a real God. I don't want to just sing about you on Sundays. And then go on about my life as if you don't exist the rest of the week. I really want to trust you. Give me courage to do the right thing even when it hurts. I want to live well and honor you. And I want to die well and honor you. For I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. Thank you, Lord, for David. Thank you for his victory over the giant. Help us be like him. In the name of Christ, we pray together. Amen.